Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Padden put on his mother's favorite blue frilly dress and went into the living room. His drunk mother sat on the couch and exclaimed, Twirl, Kristen, twirl. Cackling with delight as her son spun around the room. Padden twirled with abandon, hoping that this time his mother would love him. Keep twirling, Kristen. His mother squealed and slurred, drunker than Haddon had ever seen her. This is the story of Cannibal Brothers. Welcome to SKB, Dissecting the Serial Killer's Brain. I'm your host, Caroline, a university biology professor and true crime junkie. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil. Haddon Irving Clark was born July 31st, 1952 in Troy, New York, while his father, Haddon Sr., was finishing his PhD. Back in episode one, I talked about Bradfield Clark, the firstborn child in this Clark brood. And if you recall, Haddon Sr. and Flavia were both raging alcoholics. And we know that children that grow up in alcohol-laden households, they often are neglected by their parents. They will over the years complain about depression and other mental health issues. They will be feel isolated. They'll have trust issues as adults, difficulty forming relationships, fear of abandonment, attention seeking behavior is common. Um, and so is extreme self-judgment. Haddon had to be removed from Flavia. <laughs> That's not a really good way of saying it with forceps. And when forceps are used during birth, I mean, sometimes it's a necessary thing. They try to avoid it at every cost now. But when forceps are used during birth, it puts the baby at risk. And there are things that can happen like skull fractures, bleeding in the skull, seizures, minor trauma to the eye, facial injuries, weakness in the facial muscles. So all of these things can happen as a result of forcep birth. There's some other things too, but we'll get into that in just a little while. Well, Flavia would describe Bradfield as meaner than a rattlesnake. She would say that Haddon was born evil. The second born of four children, while his three siblings were progressing in developmentally normal ways, Haddon struggled. He had trouble walking. He had trouble learning to read, to write, to speak in sentences. Patterns on his carpet confused his brain. So his mother would actually tape padding around his head because he fell so much and hit his head so much. It's probably likely, it sounds like Haddon had dyspraxia, which is a neurological disorder that impacts an individual's ability to plan and process motor tasks. And individuals with dyspraxia often have language problems and sometimes a degree of difficulty with thought and perception. The responsibility for language falls in several areas of the brain. The first one is called Broca's area, and that's found in the medial prefrontal cortex. As I talk about these areas of the brain, if you're interested in having a visual um, to go along with what I'm saying, you can go to my website, skbpod.com, and I've got a blog there on the brain, and I've got some pictures of actual real brains that are labeled and show all these significant areas that I talk about in these episodes of Serial Killer Brain Problems. 
So the angular gyrus is another area that's involved in language. This is where language assembly happens. This area assembles the information that's necessary to understand words and concepts. Language also sits in the insular cortex. That's where it gets processed. And finally, there's an area called Wernicke's area, and this gives context and meaning or interprets context and meaning from language. So Haddon had some issues from the very, very beginning. When he was about four, Flavia brought him to the Yale University Child Study Center, and he was diagnosed with cerebral palsy and mild brain damage. This kind of makes sense because forced at births are sometimes correlated to cerebral palsy. Haddon's lovely father, Haddon Sr., would refer to Haddon as the retard. That's not my word. That's what Haddon Sr. called his own child. When a parent verbally abuses their child, this is associated with an increased gray matter volume in the auditory cortex, so more neurons to hear all the horrible things that are being thrown at you, and diminished integrity of the arcuate fasciculus. In other words, there's an increase in the ability to process incoming auditory info, but a decrease in the ability to properly interpret that incoming information. If you're interested in reading more about the impact of um, parent verbal abuse of a child, there, go to my website, skbpod.com, and I have a references list. The articles on verbal abuse from a parent are from Teacher Samson Anderson and Ohashi and Hart and Rubia. Remember in the last episode, I talked a little bit about what childhood maltreatment does to a child. Um, it's associated with decreased centrality, which is the connectedness or importance of something um, in regions that are involved in emotional regulation. So what ends up happening is there is a lessened ability to accurately attribute thoughts or intentions to others. And then there's a better ability to process your own emotional perception of things, which is, you know, if your emotional perception is way off the mark, that can be problematic. So in addition to any damage that happened during the force at birth, the fact that Haddon was exposed to violence, was exposed to abuse, and was abused as a child, the more you would stay in a heightened state of fear because it's the medial prefrontal cortex that extinguishes fear. When there's damage to the orbitofrontal cortex from force at birth or from childhood maltreatment, this can lead to increases in risky behavior. And that's increase in risky behavior, decrease in the anxiety about what that behavior might do to you. Childhood trauma or maltreatment because also leads to adults that have a lower activity in an area of the brain called the temporal pole. You also see a reduction in volume in aggressive and personality disordered individuals. And then another place where childhood maltreatment can have a devastating effect is in an area of the occipital lobe of the brain called the right lingual gyrus. And a reduction in gray matter in the right lingual gyrus is associated with um, self-reported ratings of dissociation and limbic irritability. So sensations that events, conversations, or a place was strangely familiar, as if you'd experienced or dreamed the situation before, you know, like deja vu or the sensation that your mind has left your body or that you're watching yourself as a detached observer. To compound Haddon's problems, his mother would dress him up when he was a kid. She would dress him up in frilly underpants and dresses, and then she would call him Kristen Bluefin. As Haddon got older, he would continue to dress in women's clothing and actually continued for the rest of his life. Unfortunately, the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of Mental Health Disorders 
has now recategorized cross-dressing from transvestic fetishism to transvestic disorder, considered a paraphilia. A paraphilia is just any sexual interest that would be considered outside of the norm. John Money defined paraphilia as, quote, a condition occurring in men and women of being compulsively responsive to and obligatorily dependent on an unusual and personally or socially unacceptable stimulus perceived or in the ideation and imagery of fantasy for optimal initiation and maintenance of sexual erotic arousal and the facilitation or attainment of orgasm. Paraphilic imagery may be replayed in fantasy during solo masturbation or intercourse with the partner. Its antonym is normophilia. End quote. You might wonder how these paraphilias arise. Think back to the psych course you took in high school or in college. Think about the episode of The Office where Jim trained Dwight to salivate and ask for a mento, mento, whatever those things in that tin box are, the, the mints that are in those tin boxes, that he trained Dwight to get a really bad taste in his mouth and salivate every time he heard the computer restart. Pavlov trained his dog's conditioning by offering a treat every time the bell rang. So eventually they would start to salivate when the bell rang. Well, he could then take the treat away and they would still salivate regardless of whether or not the, the desired outcome was there. So this translates to humans this way, a male or a female, but it's typically um, Paraphilias are much more common in men than they are in women. Male becomes aroused at the sight of a nude woman. The woman is unconditioned stimulus and erection and ejaculation are the unconditioned response. Now put high heels on the nude woman and expose the man to this image over and over again, ending in, erec in erection and ejaculation. Eventually, the sight of the high heel shoes would begin to serve as the conditioned stimulus or fetish. So if Haddon was aroused when he would put on these dresses, and children can be aroused, it's not the same type of sexual arousal that you have in adults, but that's where that conditioned response begins, that there's some, some arousal to wearing the dress. Eventually, as puberty comes into play, then each time the dress was put on, if Haddon ejaculated, every time he had that dress on or every time you put the dress on, then that is going to become a conditioned response. And when these paraphilias become very negative, I mean, because everybody's got a kink that they're into, whatever, most of it's harmless. But when a paraphilia is the only way sexual arousal can happen, then that becomes problematic. You can also relate orgasm to dog training, right? So when you're trying to modify a behavior in a dog, you're trying to get a dog to do something you want it to do, and if it does, then you give it a treat, right? Well, if the dog does a behavior you don't like and you give it some sort of shock, not like an electric shock, but like a burst of air um, into their face, that would be a negative consequence. So if the dog wants to treat that bad, knowing what the outcome of having that treat is, delicious treat, yum, yum, then the dog will push through that negative consequence in order to get the treat. So for example, you know you shouldn't have sex with a dead body, right? What if that was the only thing that got you aroused? The compulsion would become so strong because the end result of engaging in that compulsion would be orgasm. Let's take a quick break to hear from today's sponsors. 
Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Throughout young Haddon's life, his father and mother would drink and they would get into terrible arguments that wouldn't end until one of them was injured. Haddon Sr. would take Bradfield hunting. Haddon wasn't allowed to go on hunting trips. Um, And he taught Bradfield how to hunt and gut deer. He also taught the boys how to catch and um, trap animals and how to to trap them alive. This is a skill that Haddon would hone well. Haddon would capture squirrels, raccoons, opossums. None of them would live very long. I know I've said this before, but I'll say it again. Margaret Mead said the worst thing that can happen to it that can happen to a child is a child is allowed to hurt or kill an animal and get away with it. One animal that hadn't kept for a while was a raccoon that he had trapped. It was injured. He nursed it back to health and then he taught it to sit on his head and he would ride around. He would ride around the neighborhood on his bike with his raccoon on his head. (laughs) In addition to the Clark children being moved a couple times a year, Haddon was also moved between private school and public school and back and forth and back and forth. And he, and he would be taken out of school for times to go to mental health appointments. He ended up failing two grades in elementary school. He had a relatively low IQ. In a couple of the books I read, it reported that, that Haddon had a genius level IQ. But that doesn't seem to be true. Although he could play chess really well from a young age, his IQ is thought to have been somewhere in the low 80s. Haddon Sr. continued to be verbally and physically abusive to Haddon and his other children as well. Haddon Sr. would beat Haddon with a belt when the younger Haddon would get out of the bathtub naked and vulnerable. Unsurprisingly, the young Haddon would act out. When his feelings are hurt or when he was mad about something, he would lash out at whoever the person he was mad at and he would lash out violently. What he would do is he would kidnap the pet of the person who had wronged him. He'd kill the pet and he'd place it on the doorstep all bloodied. And that started happening when he was young. So what does that behavior tell us about young Haddon? Well, do you have a conduct disorder possibly? A conduct disorder, uh, as characterized by the Center for Disease Control, is defined as breaking serious rules, such as running away, staying out all night when told not to, or skipping school, being aggressive in a way that causes harm, such as bullying, fighting, or being cruel to animals, lying, stealing, or damaging other people's property on purpose, or maybe oppositional defiant disorder, which is characterized and defined as often being angry or losing one's temper. 
often arguing with adults or refusing to comply with adults' rules or requests, often resentful or spiteful, deliberately annoying others or becoming annoyed with others, often blaming other people for one's own mistakes and behaviors. So it sounds like uh, Young Haddon um, probably had a little bit of both conduct disorder and some oppositional defiant disorder in addition to his paraphilia, in addition to his cerebral palsy and slight brain damage. And in addition to his being subjected to verbal and physical and possibly sexual abuse, Haddon found some solace at church as a young kid. He liked to go to church because the pastor would say that Jesus loves everyone. He thought it was especially wonderful that you could do anything you wanted as long as you were sorry. Everything would be okay. That's what he hadn't believed anyway. By the time he was a teenager... At some point, he walked in on his father, and his father was having sex with a young girl from the neighborhood. I couldn't figure out how young she was, but the fact that a book written in the early 90s said she was very young leads me to believe she was, you know, maybe 13, 14, 15. Instead of the father being embarrassed, he threatened Haddon that he hadn't better never tell Flavia about this or anybody else for that matter. Sometime around this incident, Haddon was caught peeping, and he was charged by the police. When Flavia consulted a psychotherapist about this behavior, the therapist told her that she really shouldn't challenge Haddon over it, that he would grow out of it. We know now that that is absolutely 100% wrong. Voyeurism is a paraphilia, and it can be categorized as a uh, like a disorder of the courtship process. And the courtship process are those stages that you go through when you're looking for a partner, right? There's the search, the search for the partner. You're looking for somebody that you think is attractive or that, you know, whatever, whatever characteristics you're looking for. Then there's non-physical flirting, and that's, you know, um, seeing each other across the room, batting eyelashes, flipping hair, you know, those sorts of things. And then tactile interaction or petting, kissing, touching. That's the next phase. And then the final phase, the final courtship phase is copulation. So each one of these, each one of these courtship phases can be disturbed. So in that first phase, searching for a partner, that can go wrong and become voyeurism, pre tactile interaction, the non-physical flirting, this can become um, problematic when it's expressed with exhibitionism. Then tactile interaction, interaction, so the consensual touching of each other, part of a partner who is willing and, of, and able to consent, that can be equated to um, frauderism when something goes bad. And frauderism is when you go out in public and you rub your genitals against somebody or you try to rub their genitals. It's, it's touching in a, like an open environment almost. And then normal copulation or normal sexual interaction, that would then be re replaced by rape when there's a disorder of the courtship phases. Voyeurism is not harmless. It can lead to moving into these next stages of the courtship process, of the disordered courtship process. Voyeurism can become exhibitionism. Exhibitionism become frauderism, and frauderism can lead to rape. Voyeurism is enforced by conditioning, through that operant conditioning. There's some reward at the end of voyeur, at the end of voyeuring, at the end of peeping, and that reward is, you know, ejaculation. In a study dated back to 1988, 
They reported that most voyeurs reported having a negative relationship with their fathers, and 36% of voyeurs and exhibitionists reported being physically abused. According to uh, Laws and O'Donohue in Sexual Deviance Theory and Treatment, three factors are central to voyeurism. And this is a quote directly out of their book. A preoccupation, hypercathexis, not well understood with visual function. So one can see examples of this kind of hypercathexis in people who are not voyeurs. Artists and mathematicians are two classes of people who often um, have the sort of visual mindedness that psychoanalysts believe to be common in voyeurs. Now, that doesn't mean that they're voyeurs, but they have that same sort of um, uh, visual drive, visual interest. Postnatal experiences involving early visual exchanges with the mother, as well as fear of loss of her and her breast, castration fears ignited by observing adult genitals, may lead to peeping as a means of gaining a sense of mastery over what was once a fearful or overstimulating episode. Early trauma during the first or second year of life that cripples the relationship of the mother and child. Such trauma is thought to result in pregenital fixation, sexual identity problems, and impairment of both the ego and superego, going back to Freud there. By contrast, simple scopetophilia um, is suspected of involving less serious or later traumas. And in case you're wondering what scopetophilia is, obtaining sexual pleasure by looking at nude bodies, erotic photos, etc. is a substitute for an actual sexual relationship. Years later, Haddon would tell author Adrian Havel, who wrote Born Evil, that he killed his first victim, a boy, at age 14, and that his dad helped him cover it up. At one point, Haddon would let his mother know that Bradfield had sexually assaulted him up in their treehouse. When Flavia asked Bradfield about it or confronted Bradfield about it, he denied it, so she just dropped the whole allegation and didn't believe Haddon. This may surprise you, but the most common form of familial abuse is sibling sexual abuse. According to an article by Krenert and Walsh in the journal Child Sexual Abuse, quote, studies have linked sibling sexual abuse to serious adverse outcomes, both in childhood and extending later into adult life, including depression, low self-esteem, substance abuse, post-traumatic stress disorder, future physical and sexual abuse, eating disorders, future submissiveness, suicide, and relationship intimacy problems, end quote. Further, according to an article by Morrill in the Journal of Family Violence, quote, maladaptive parental behavior and dysfunctional family structures have an impact on the sibling relationship, end quote. So when the abuse is minimized or ignores, it intensifies the feelings of shame, guilt, and hope and hopelessness, and it causes a disruption in the developmental stages that your brain is going through. Again, going back to that article by Morell, as a group, children who have suffered sibling sexual abuse exhibit the most severe forms of mental distress and, so and antisocial behavior. As adults, both victims and offenders will begin to exhibit mental health issues. Mental illness related to the abuse also begins to surface at this time, and many survivors and offenders reporting symptoms of post-traumatic stress disorder, anxiety disorder, depression, dissociative disorder, eating disorders, angry outbursts, self-injury, somatic complaints, and suicidal ideation. Outside of church, the only other place that hadn't really felt safe and like he belonged was his grandparents' place in Cape Cod, Massachusetts. Silas and Edith would provide him with the affection that he craved. Haddon and Jeff would say later that these were the happiest days of their lives. In 1962, the Clarks moved to Pennsylvania from New Jersey. 
Every time they'd move into a new neighborhood, the neighborhood would welcome them. At first, they would welcome them with open arms because they seemed to be a really great family. Four children, father has a PhD, mother's from good old whatever stock. It wouldn't take long for the neighbors to be put off by the Clarks' oddness. In 1964, the Clarks decided to send Haddon to a boarding school for learning disabled. He was there for three years, and while he was there, apparently he stabilized enough to attend a public, a public middle school by 1967. Throughout his teen years, Haddon would continue to cross-dress. He was caught wearing the nightgown of a neighbor whose lawn he had just mowed, and when he got caught, he said that they sh nobody should try to change him. Flavia, no doubt, continued to drink and would tell Haddon, it's you who made me drink and smoke, and now I can't stop. For high school, Haddon attended Yardley's Pensbury High School and Bucks County Technical School, where he took commercial cooking lessons. He actually did really well when he was cooking. In his last year of high school, he lived with family friends because his parents had relocated once again um, right outside of Cleveland, Ohio. He finally graduated high school in 1972 at the age of 20. From there, he had enjoyed the commercial cooking lessons he took, so he decided he wanted to be a chef. First, he started baking little treats and things out of his mother's basement, but she decided that if Haddon was going to do something good, he was going to go to the Culinary Institute of America, and he was going to do it right. So he attended the Culinary Institute of America in Hyde Park, New York. Haddon is very artistic. He was great at making ice sculptures and carving hardened salts, making like flowers from vegetables, all those sorts of cool things. He loved the positive accolades and he began to collect every type of knife he could possibly get his hands on. And he kept them all very, very sharp in a long metal box. But Haddon was Haddon. He would get angry and he would act out spitefully. Once he urinated into a vat of mashed potatoes when he got mad and didn't tell them about it until much later. Somehow, though, Haddon was able to graduate from the Culinary Institute in January of 1974. And this would be the last time the whole Clark would, would come together and they came together to attend his commencement. He got a chef job right out of school at the Moors in Provincetown, Massachusetts. But he was quickly fired when he was caught... Um, Chugging beef blood while he was working. Yeah, I guess that probably wouldn't look very good. Right around this time, his uh, grandfather Silas dies in March of 1975. And eventually the house in Cape Cod that um, hadn't felt so safe in was sold. Over the next few years, Haddon had several more incidences at restaurants in the Cape Cod area until he could no longer get a job in that area. Flavia and Haddon Sr. would finally split up in 1978. Not long after that, uh, Haddon Sr. got remarried. Flavia and her brother at this time, um, her brother was also a severe alcoholic, they bought a cottage on Block Island that same year. After having exhausted all of his chefing options, seemingly in the Cape Cod area, the younger Haddon was hired on a cruise ship in 1979. He was hired on the SS Norway as a chef. That lasted for about a year, which seemed to be one of his longer stints at a job. Haddon was a really talented ice sculpturer, and he carved ice sculptures at the 1980 Olympics at Lake Placid. Haddon's next endeavor into the chefing industry was a short-lived job at the 
Brown Palace in Denver. He lost his job in January of 1982. Following this, he went to go stay with his mother and her dying father. But the only reason he was allowed to stay or the circumstances that he could stay under would be as if he did yard work. All in all, between 1974 and 1982, Haddon had whopping 14 different jobs. So it sounds like he was following in his father's footsteps and changing jobs on a regular basis. In 1982, Haddon's grandparents' house was sold. Remember, his grandparents' house had been uh, a place that offered him some solace in his very chaotic and unhappy childhood. So what would this younger Haddon do next? Well, on March 31st, 1982, Haddon attacked his mother without provocation. Supposedly, that's according to his mother anyway. He kicked her and then he beat her up. Flavia went to the police. Um, they charged Haddon with assault and battery, but then the courts decided not to prosecute him. Needless to say, Haddon was not allowed to continue living there. After Flavia's father passed away, in 1983, she bought up her brother's share of their joint property, and she used her divorce money to do that. Occasionally, Haddon would show up needing a place to stay. Flavia would always let him stay, but she didn't let him stay in the house any longer. At one time, there's a story about how he was living in the pump house on the property and that he, the neighbors were really disturbed by him because he had rotting turtle shells surrounding his bed. Delightful. This is a good place to take a break and hear a word from our sponsors. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. In 1983, Haddon joined the U.S. Navy. He was stationed on the USS Carl Vinson as a cook. The other sailors would beat him up on a regular basis when they would catch him wearing women's underwear. One time, they beat him up so bad, and then they locked him in a freezer and left him there for hours. From there, after that incident, he was transferred to the USS Roosevelt. But... Here, too, a group of sailors jumped him sometime in 1984, and they beat him so severely that they knocked him unconscious for hours. And when he woke up, he was in the hospital. Haddon was transferred to the USS Iwo Jima, where the persecution continued. So people did not like Haddon. Then within a couple of weeks of being transferred to the Iwo Jima, Haddon was um, evaluated and declared unfit for duty, and he was sent to Portsmouth Naval Hospital and diagnosed as having, having had an acute psychotic episode. Every time he would go ashore, he would have some sort of incident where he would black out and not remember what he had done. He was evaluated one last time before he was discharged from the military on June 22, 1985, receiving an honorable discharge with a 30% disability and a small pension. The final evaluation by the military psychiatrist was that Haddon was a schizophrenic and that he was paranoid with manifestations of persecution and grandiose delusions. But Haddon's now out of the Navy and has no place to go. 
So a couple days after his discharge, he showed up on his brother Jeff's doorstep, and Jeff let him rent the basement for $400, $450 a month plus some food. Two months later, Haddon was arrested for stealing panties and bras from a department store. And in May of 1986, Haddon is caught masturbating in front of his brother Jeff's children, and Jeff asks Haddon to move out. So let's unpack Haddon, Irving Clark, just a little bit. Let's look first at the common characteristics of serial killers. A lot of people will go to the McDonald triad as kind of the definitive set of predictors for serial killers. And the, the McDonald triad includes bedwetting, fire setting, and animal abuse. Although those are common in a lot of serial killers, the path to serial killer um, psychopathy is a lot more complex than just those three things. So it's probably a combination of factors, including childhood sexual or physical abuse, isolation or neglect, a predisposition towards addiction, a preference for autoeroticism in lieu of experimenting with peers, and an interest in engaging in voyeurism, a hatred for mother because mother is either too domineering or she's too submissive, and finally, uh, some sort of head injury at some point throughout the course of the individual's childhood or early adult years. As a child, Haddon grew up around domestic violence. He himself was abused, so he saw abuse happening and was abused himself. Nurturing and support are essential in helping a child's brain to develop in a healthy way, and this really has to begin at birth. From the moment a child is born, he must bond with his mother or a primary caregiver. A newborn baby's vision is somewhere between 2200 and 2400, meaning that the smallest thing somebody with 2200 vision could see at 20 feet away, a person with perfect vision would be able to see that from 200 feet away. When a baby is being nursed or held close and being fed a bottle, the distance between the baby's eyes and mom's eyes is perfect. And this exchange between, um, this exchange in eye contact stimulates the release of a hormone called oxytocin. And oxytocin is that hormone that causes uterine contractions during childbirth, but it's also called the cuddle hormone because it helps in bonding between mother and baby, and also it assists in the bonding between adult sex partners too. When a mother does not make a consistent eye contact with her baby, then the levels of oxytocin, and, and not just eye contact, but also touch and, um, you know, love, cuddling, and all those sorts of things. When a mother does not do this consistently, then the levels of oxytocin will decrease. When a mother makes lots of consistent eye contact and touch with her baby, then the levels of oxytocin increase. A lack of this sort of bonding is correlated with something called reactive attachment disorder. Um, and this is what, what it's diagnosed as in children. And this reactive attachment disorder can follow people into adulthood. Uh, reactive attachment disorder in adults manifests detachment, impulsivity, anger problems, and inability to fully understand emotions and feelings of loneliness, just to name a few. RAD can also result in adult anxiety or depressive disorders, dissociative disorders, and personality disorders. In children, these personality disorders can manifest as conduct disorders like cruelty to animal or oppositional defiance disorder, which... Um, manifest in like resentful and spiteful behavior. When a child undergoes verbal, physical, or sexual abuse, this can cause significant changes in the brain. 
In child victims, there's an increase in corticotropin-releasing hormone from the hypothalamus and an increased level of cortisol from the adrenal gland. So cortisol is a hormone that is useful during a stress response or during fight or flight because it promotes the synthesis of new glucose or blood sugar. And it's glucose that's used by our cells in order to make energy. In really high levels, cortisol can lead to negative things such as immunosuppression, and it can even cause the, the suppression of sex hormones. Additionally, these high levels of cortisol can keep the body in a constant state of hyperarousal of the limbic system. And remember that the limbic system is our emotional brain. In childhood trauma, there's an immediate increase of cortisol, which will in turn cause hypertrophy or growth of the pituitary gland. And the pituitary gland is sort of the intermediary between the hypothalamus and the adrenal glands. Before I get into brain sensitivity and vulnerability periods, it might be useful to understand basic development phases of children. I'm just going to talk about some of the developmental milestones that are important for us and for what we're talking about here. I'm not going to talk about every single mile, developmental milestone of every single year. But by six months, a baby is able to respond to facial expressions and tones of voice. By 18 months, a child can recognize themselves in a mirror. By 24 months, a child will play near other children, um, but may be defiant sometimes. By age three, a child will begin to express empathy for other children who are hurt or crying and will express affection. By four, child, the child knows what they like and dislike, and now they'll play with other children, not just beside other children. From six to eight years, children begin to cooperate with others. They may feel jealousy and they also mimic behaviors of adults. By nine to 11 years, children can see things from another person's perspective. By ages 12 to 14, they begin to show independence from their parents, and by 15, an increase in sexual interest and a growth in the ability to feel empathy. The brain is more vulnerable to maltreatment at particular developmental stages. The hippocampus, which is involved in the fear response and the formation of new memories, it's susceptible to changes resulting from maltreatment from ages 3 to 5 and 11 to 15. Another um, important area of the brain is the inferior longitudinal fasciculus. And these, these are fibers that run from the anterior insular lobe, which is an important one, to the posterior occipital lobe. This area is vulnerable from ages 7 to 9 and 11 to 15. So lots of stuff going on between 11 and 15, lots of sensitivity. Damage to the inferior longitudinal fasciculus is associated with thought disorders and cognitive impairments. The right amygdala is particularly sensitive to maltreatment from ages 9 to 13. Maltreatment leads to increased gray matter, which then heightens the fear response. Finally, the prefrontal cortex is at the highest risk of damage from ages 13 to 18, although it's always vulnerable. And we know what the prefrontal cortex does. Of particular importance is its role in inhibiting impulses and exhibiting proper social behavior. And another important area of the prefrontal cortex is the medial prefrontal cortex, right? So this little tiny area in the prefrontal cortex. And this is where the fear response is extinguished. So in addition, in addition to vulnerability during specific maltreatment sensitivity periods, maltreatment can cause general changes to important areas of the brain. One such region susceptible to maltreatment, the anterior cingulate gyrus, is interconnected with the amygdala and the hypothalamus, and it's associated with overall affect. It assigns emotions to internal and external stimuli 
and also categorizes the vocalizations that are associated with expressing desires and emotions. The anterior cingulate cortex is thought to be involved in decision-making, the management of social behavior, emotional regulation, attention, and social cognition. Damage to this area is ascribed to a decrease in the connectedness in these areas of, the emotional, of emotional regulation. Conversely, maltreatment is associated with increased connectedness in areas involved in self-awareness. First, the precuneus, which is a major part of the default mode network, and the major the um, default mode network is it's associated with streaming consciousness. It's your brain that's active while you're resting quietly. Okay, so the precuneus um, exhibits different activity in people with schizophrenia, and it's associated with the tendency to view innocuous stimuli as having a specific meaning for the self, associated with personality traits and disorders, and it's often associated with um, narcissistic personality disorder. So if you, if you listen to the long-form podcast uh, cold on Josh Powell, well, I should say on the murder of Susan Powell, they talk a lot about Josh Powell's father, Steve, who was obsessed with, who was totally obsessed with Susan Powell. Josh Powell's father, Steve, he believed that he and... Susan were like psychically connected and that like they could um, like anything she did was for his for his attention or his approval. So I'm going to wonder if he had a little precuneus, dam precuneus damage there. The anterior insula, um, it also exhibits increased activity or connectedness as a result of maltreatment. It contains an interoceptive representation that provides the basic for the basis for all of our subjective feelings from the body. So basically what interoceptive awareness is, it's the ability to identify, access, understand, and respond appropriately to the patterns of internal signals. So it provides a distinct advantage to engage in life's challenges and ongoing adjustments. And that's according to Prince and Hooven, 2018. Teacher Anderson uh, Ohashi and Polkaria in 2014 argue that the anterior insula is critical for self-awareness. When a child witnesses domestic violence, it can also lead to changes in the brain and disruption of the healthy brain development. According to teacher Samson Anderson Ohashi 2016, witnessing multiple episodes of domestic violence leads to a decrease in the integrity of the inferior longitudinal fasciculus, and this damage is associated with secondary derealization. And it's that feeling that you're moving through a movie or a dream that you're not really part of what's happening around you. It's not like deja vu where you feel like you've been in a place before, um, but I, I've often described my feeling as I, my feelings as I move through life that I feel like I'm walking around in a cloud where it's, uh, there's, it's not real. It's, it's, very, it's a very strange sensation. Further, Herbert et al. in 2018 stated that disruption of the inferior longitudinal fasciculus may constitute the, the, pathophysiolo the pathophysiological basis for visual hallucination and social-emotional impairments in schizophrenia, as well as emotional difficulties in the autism spectrum disorders, end quote. So what does all of this mean? Well, in short, when children are subjected to maltreatment, they lose the ability to properly process fear or react appropriately when challenged with a difficult situation. 
Children who have been maltreated develop an intense sense of self and often will attribute negativity to situations that are harmful. It seems to be tied to self-preservation. There seems to be generational violence in the Clark family. According to a 2009 article by Bailey Hill, Osterley, and Hawkins, they talk about generational violence in terms of social learning theory. So a behavior in one generation is often associated with the same behavior in subsequent generations. When generational violence is a family characteristic, children will, ex they will um, exhibit externalizing behavior, which is displaying poor impulse control, oppositional behaviors, aggressiveness, or delinquent behaviors. When a child is harshly disciplined, spanking, yelling, screaming, threatening them, in response to misbehavior, it is correlated to higher levels of child externalizing behaviors. This becomes, general, this becomes generational if a parent exhibited externalizing behaviors as children, that they would then likely continue that behavior through adulthood. And as adults, they will form effective bonds with other individuals who also display these kinds of antisocial behaviors. This is further compounded if the primary caregivers are not, act, are not acting and sensitive to the needs of an infant, as is the case in maltreatment. That affected individual will struggle to form healthy attachments in adulthood. And faulty attachment can increase the likelihood of abusive behavior as an adult. There are a plethora of studies that have shown child neglect is four times more common in women who were victims of childhood abuse. Further, one in 15 babies born to parents who were abused go on to be abusers, compared to one in 234 in non-abused children. Then, if Hadden was sexually assaulted by his older brother, Bradfield, this likely caused a disruption in the developmental stages of Hadden's brain and can lead to severe forms of mental distress and antisocial behavior. Hadden was diagnosed with mild brain damage and cerebral palsy, which is weakness of muscles, or an inability to properly control muscle movements that is likely caused by his force at birth. I can't find any information on what part of his brain was damaged, but I think it would be a fair guess um, that it was his frontal lobe. Hadden also displayed signs of conduct disorder and oppositional defiant disorder exemplified in his aggressive and retaliatory behaviors. Hadden was a voyeur, which is a disorder that um, it's a disorder of the normal courtship process. Voyeurism is a paraphilia that's reinforced through conditioning. Think of Pavlov's dogs, that he got them to salivate at the sound of a bell um, by training them, by going through this operant conditioning and training them to salivate because he would give them a treat. And then eventually the treat would be taken away and the dog would continue salivating when the bell rung. In a 1988 study, the authors found that most voyeurs claimed a negative relationship with their father, and 36% of voyeurs and exhibitionists reported being physically abused. According to Laws and O'Donohue, in sexual deviance theory and treatment, three factors are central to voyeurism. Hypercathexis, which is a preoccupation with visual functions. Postnatal experiences involving early visual exchange with mother. And finally, early trauma during the first or second year of life that cripples the relationship with mother. So really, a lot of, uh, I should have added that to my characteristics of serial killers that we're going to talk about. But add, go ahead, ahead of time, add in a problematic relationship with mother. So this sort of trauma is thought to result in pregenital fixation, sexual identity problems, and impairment of both the ego and superego. According to studies by Kaplan and Kruger in 1997 and Freund in 1998, between 20 and 37% of voyeurs go on to commit rape. 
not only was Haddon a voyeur, he would also engage in exhibition. And exhibition is a distortion of the affiliative phase of the courtship process. It's like flirting, looking at each other across the room, batting your eyelashes, that sort of thing. This is particularly disturbing, his uh, exhibitionism, because it was in front of his niece and nephews and he masturbated in front of them. The path to serial killer psychopathy is complex and it does not follow a prescribed set of characteristics. There are, however, several characteristics that are common among serial killers, including childhood abuse, verbal, physical, sexual, neglect or isolation, voyeurism, inability to feel empathy, antisocial behavior such as animal abuse or arson, a predisposition to addiction, head trauma, and a problematic relationship with mother. Mother is either too submissive and allows terrible things to happen, or mother is so domineering and overbearing that it drives the child to want to kill all the mommies. We are not done with Haddon yet. Join me next time as I tell you the story of a little girl named Michelle. This was SKB, Dissecting the Serial Killer's Brain. If you enjoy the show, rate and review on your listening platform. Follow me on most of your social media platforms at SKBpod or visit my blog at skbpod.com. Thanks for joining me on my quest to understand evil.